as we study Lord's Day 34 this afternoon concerning the first commandment, we lay the foundation for that in God's word by turning first to Exodus chapter 12. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 12. Here we know God institutes the Passover and ordains the Passover feast when God's people were delivered out of bondage on that night. The first few verses detail how God's people were to kill the Passover lamb, how they were to prepare it for the Passover feast, how they could eat together with it as small families and so forth. And God's great promise as to what he will do that night for them. We begin to read in chapter 12 and verse 12 through verse 14. What God promises he will do. He says, verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And then to chapter 20, the familiar words of the Ten Commandments. We just read verses 1, 2, and 3. Exodus 20. God's people now, having come out of the land, are gathered before God at Mount Sinai. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. We stop there, and then we go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We go forward 40 years. Israel is about to enter the promised land. And again, God's law is further flushed out, expanded upon for Israel's destruction, uh, for, for her instruction, rather, and her holiness. Deuteronomy 18, reading at verse 9 to verse 14. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations whom you will dispossess listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. And then speaking very positively concerning the law of the Lord, we turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Our last piece of scripture, Proverbs 3, verses 1 to 6. My son, 
Do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace, they will be added to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Thus far we read from God's holy word. And now turn to Lord's Day 34, the back of our hymn books. Lord's Day 34, as it uh, continues the third section of the Catechism entitled Our Deliverance, How We Are Set Free from Our Sin and Misery, begun already in Lord's Day 32, and now we go to Lord's Day 34. Question 92, what is the law of the Lord? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. <clears throat> how are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teach us how to live in relation to God. The second, what are duties we owe to our neighbor? What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints, to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. And lastly, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having 
or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Part of our Reformed Confession congregation by which we live and further come to know the Lord our God better. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord in various ways uh, comes into our lives as he did so often to the Israelites with the simple expression, I am the Lord your God and you shall be my people. God was the one who, who began the contact with his people to initiate that covenant of redemption and he is the one who continues to build that relationship of his saving grace and we are simply those who are so privileged to be part of that covenant community that he has put together. He is after all our maker. We are not his maker. We are not his maker and that shows the vast difference between the living God and the sinful imaginations of our own heart which would concoct for ourselves a a God of our own liking, a God of our choice, a God of our imagination. Meanwhile, we know that the one true God has made the heavens and the earth. I say these things because as we go to the catechism where we see the catechism beginning to teach uh, the law of gratitude, teaching us the Ten Commandments, we, we learn to pay particular attention, first of all, to the historical redemptive context in which God gave Israel his holy law. And this forms the whole foundation for that covenant relationship that we have with God. The context, of course, is Israel's deliverance out of bondage from the land of Egypt. At the point of her deliverance, God then gives them his holy law. And that is also the point in which the Heidelberg Catechism also introduces the law of God to us once we've learned about our deliverance, our deliverance from the bondage to our sin and to Satan and to death. At that point, the Catechism begins by introducing God's holy law to us as that formula for our gratitude. As it was for the ancient church, so it is for us as well today. And so our theme congregation this afternoon, out of bondage, God has delivered us. We note in the first place, what is the, what is the foundation or the basis for the first commandment? Well, notice how it is introduced to us in the catechism. It follows the scripture's pattern, of course. Question 92, what is the law of the Lord? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Notice how right at the outset, before God even gives the first commandment, he first tells us who he is and what he has done for us. On that basis, he gives the first commandment to us. He tells us who he is and what he has done. He says, first, I am the Lord your God. That's a statement of fact. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
That's a statement of fact. He says, um, I, have, uh, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Another fact that the Lord here gives to us. And then, it, and then he says, now you shall have no other gods before me. Because of what I have done, this now is how you are to live. Eh, the basis for the first commandment uh, is upon what God has done for us, what he has done for his people, delivering them out of Egypt. The Catechism quotes Exodus 20, verse 1, 2, and 3. In that question 92, it's answer. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. God here calls the shots because of what he has done. He immediately claims his ownership upon us based on what he has done. We cannot help but say, Lord, we are yours because you called us out of our bondage. You've brought us into the marvelous light of your grace. And uh, we see how, how God's grace then so much comes to the foreground immediately as he brings his people out of bondage. But now the question, how and why could God deliver his people out of bondage? How and why? Well, we see some of the details in Exodus chapter 12 and reading at verse 13. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. <clears throat> on the basis of that blood of the Passover lamb, which God says that I see, on that basis I will pass over you and not destroy you like I destroy all the firstborn of Egypt. On the basis of that Passover lamb, the blood of that lamb being shed, on that basis their deliverance can now commence and it will also be assured. Now we all know about the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn child in, in every Egyptian household. That particular death will therefore not fall upon God's people because God will pass over the Israelites, sparing them, sparing their children, and giving them life, giving them deliverance from that bondage to Egypt. And it's because he says he sees the blood. That's an interesting statement there in verse, in verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, as if to say here's the factual proof that the Passover lamb has been shed in your place. Your blood should really have been shed, but now I see the blood of another smeared upon the door frames of your houses, and what I see demonstrates what I, ha what I am doing for you. 
I am now able to pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of, of Egypt. And this is an amazing thing, because all the Israelites, like all the Egyptians, deserve to not be passed over, but to be destroyed on account of their own sin, their own idolatry, their own wickedness, their own rebellion, their own fallenness as being children of Adam. But when God sees that blood on their houses, he says, I will pass over you. Again, going to Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That just happened. And now the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, I am the only God that's before you. Between you and me, there's nothing else. You come before me, I'm the only God before you. And therefore, what must you do? But hear me out, hear me as I bring to you my first commandment for your good that demonstrates my ownership over you, that demonstrates I have redeemed you out of the land of Egypt. And congregation is not the blood of the Passover lamb prefiguring the very blood of that great Passover lamb that was to come is not the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all those countless Passover lambs that had been shed in all those centuries, beginning with that very night in which Israel was first delivered out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Is not the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed for us also the basis for our relationship with God? And is that not the basis for then God having the right also to command us and say, now you shall have no other gods before me. Before, before um, me you come. And between us, of course, is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, God is fully in his right to command us to keep or to have no other gods before him. On that basis, we cannot help but simply say, Lord, because you've delivered me from bondage, what a great privilege it is for me now to hear your command and to take it home to my heart and to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to obey this command of, your, of yours, this first one of yours to me, to have no other gods before you. In fact, we know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 or 7. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He was. That's what Paul said then to the Corinthians. On that basis, too, they were commanded to keep the first commandment because he had brought them out of bondage from their sins. 
Going back to Exodus chapter 12 at verse 14, God further teaches his people once the Passover, uh, that first Passover lamb is shed and their deliverance has been achieved. He says in verse 14, for this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. God set in motion and brought to pass that, that the, the sacrifice of the, of the first Passover lamb. And on that basis, he ordained a Passover feast to be an everlasting ordinance for God's people, the Israelites, to keep and to practice and to be a means whereby they would teach their children about this great deliverance. And this practice was to be carried forward throughout all their generations until the coming of that great Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be sacrificed, Paul says, as our Passover. And he indeed then would fulfill uh, all the sacrificing of all those Passover lambs that had once been sacrificed for God's people. And now this final great one for his people again, once and for all, and for, and for us as well. You have to keep in mind, as surely as that first Passover feast uh, was instituted and ordained, we know it could not have been ordained and, and, and brought to, to be part of Israel's uh, religious feastly order unless God had also promised and also assured that the final Passover lamb would also be ordained of him for the saving of his people. A congregation who possibly could have delivered you out of bondage from your sin, the power of Satan, or from any other God. What God, what power, what means could have delivered you and given to you life? Tell me, is there another God? another thing, another being, another force, another something that could deliver you from your bondage. I guess it means we can't have any other God then, can we? Because there is no other God, really. There is no other power, no other force, no other religion, no other works, none other but God himself and the Passover lamb that he has provided for us. How could we possibly then even remotely consider to have another God before us? It's a logical impossibility realistically, sensibly so, that we could have another God and yet know for sure he could never deliver us out of our bondage. You see where this catechism is getting at and what the Lord God is teaching us here when we see this basis, not only for our salvation, but this basis for God commanding us and telling us 
that we can't have any other gods because he alone is and he alone has delivered us out of all our bondage. Congregation, our whole life, therefore, is grounded. Our whole life is shaped and formed by this first commandment. This first commandment really determines the perspective out of which we live, out of which we hope, out of which we able are to be what we are as Christians. And this is further reinforced to us as we look at question 93, how are these commandments divided? It says into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God, and the second, what duties we owe to our neighbor. We focus simply on the first part of the answer here this afternoon, and we see how this first commandment is so foundational uh, to all the commandments, of course, but it is so foundational as well to the first four commandments that tell us and, and, and uh, define for us what is our relationship to God. What really is our relationship to God? What is it like? What ought it to be? Based on his delivering us from bondage. Could our relationship to God be kind of lukewarm where we keep God at a distance? A God that we only half-heartedly want to trust and believe in and follow or listen to? Since he has delivered us from bondage, could we have any kind of a, a lousy or a reluctant relationship to our God? If that was the case, what would that really sh show or tell? It would, it, would, it would give us conclusion, well, Guess what, oh Lord, you, I really have some other gods too. There's other things I, I like, other things I depend upon, other things that make me happy. But when we look at here, congregation, what is to be the relationship to our God based on the fact that he has delivered us, we can't help but conclude that I shall have no other gods before you. I can't. I must not. It logically makes no sense to have other gods, none whatsoever. So, your relationship to the Lord God, who's brought his people out of bondage, what is your relationship like? How does it feel in your heart, in your life, as you're busy with so many things? At the end of the day, in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of your joys, can you, do you say, I have no other gods before you, O Lord. What you command, <laughs> that shapes me. What you command, that's me. I have no other gods before you. That's a solid ground, congregation, theologically speaking, upon which we ground our lives. This is, this is holy ground. Like when Moses came to the burning bush, he was on holy ground because there he met Jehovah. There was nothing between him either and the Lord God. He was on holy ground. God had come to him. God comes to us through Christ. 
So there's nothing between us but this relationship, this covenant relationship of love and grace. Holy ground in which he tells us, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the house of bondage. Because I am your Redeemer, I am now also to be your lawgiver too. The one simply follows the other. And that, of course, is the logical thing in our Christian life, that once we have been redeemed, we show that redemption by means of that life of gratitude unto him, which is so beautifully spelled out logically as well in these Ten Commandments. At the end of the day, congregation, I trust you all are able to say, out of bondage, I have been delivered. Now it's my privilege to make sure and to enjoy the fact that there are no other gods before me but him, him alone. Well, secondly, what does this life look like? What is this calling that God lays upon our hearts, this calling of the first commandment? Well, we see questions 94 and 95 of the catechism give us some of the sum and the substance of that life of gratitude, that life of obedience. We'll look at question 94 first. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, prayers to saints and to other creatures. Further, I rightly come to know the only true God. I trust in him alone, submit to him with humility and, and patience, expect all good from him only, and love and fear and honor him with all my heart. It starts off by saying, for the sake of my very salvation, and that's the concern God has for us. He too is very concerned about our salvation and that we do nothing to jeopardize that salvation, but that that salvation indeed will remain intact, that we will indeed be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. You, you all know that, don't you? God's concern for our salvation is very real. Now, that does not mean Christians can lose their salvation, and yet they must work that out. It must be part and parcel of their whole existence. And so God wants us to never look elsewhere to find our comfort or to find direction in life, so to speak, in, in an area or in a way that excludes him we're not to find the answer to life's troubles and miseries and riddles by looking elsewhere, as is mentioned here in the Catechism, idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, prayers to saints, and so forth. We must look only to the Lord our God who has delivered us out of bondage already. Because he has done that, he still has a vital concern for all the rest of our life too. And so we ought not to look for any kind of fake helps, whether that be witchcraft. Notice that word there in our confession, idolatry and witchcraft. And under that we would think of things like black magic and superstition and sorcery, all those things that deal with the occult, Satanism, fortune-telling, and so forth, all these things that many, many people turn to and look for help from and put their trust in. We are not to go there. We are not to even be praying to saints or other creatures. We're not to go anywhere where we might find some help and hope 
or guidance for the future or for our protection or for our security. You know, it's in each and every one of us to, to kind of know what's going to be happening tomorrow or next week and to kind of find, you know, that safety net to maintain that security and that sense of sanity within us to feel secure and to know we're being guided by something sure. And that's why in the past, countless peoples over the centuries have looked to the astrologers and they've looked to the stars as a ready-made kind of a solution, as a place to find some security. The stars will guide our lives. People have looked to wizards and to witches. They look to their own human wisdom. They look to their own gut instinct as if that is the truth. That'll tell them what to do. And never mind listening to the word of God or anything else. I just go by my instincts, people will say. Or I just trust my luck. Or I look to my own ingenuity. That will get me out of trouble again. The bottom line here is there are tons and tons of idols. Things to turn to. And we can easily forget I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, therefore I have no other gods before me. Remember, that's the basis for our relationship. That's the ground upon which we live our lives. But the question, what do you trust in? You answer that by also answering this question. Who has redeemed you? There you'll find the answer. Because he has redeemed you, you can trust him with all of your life and all of the future that lies in front of you. He's delivered you out of bondage, delivered you out of your sin, from all the dark powers of Satan and all the idols of the world. He's delivered us from our idolatry our idolatry. That's our default position to go to those idols and to drink from the trough of all that misery and death, all the fake helps. What is idolatry? That too is at the issue of the first commandment. Question 95 asks, what is idolatry? It is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to. How often don't we kind of pile up something else in our lives as a, as a trust, as a, as a good luck thing, as, a, as, an, as an extra help, keep, we keep our fingers crossed. Instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. God would agree with that. God is so concerned about our salvation, as the Catechism points out in question 94, for the sake of my very salvation, God says, please avoid, flee, run from all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and all those things that would separate me from you. And instead, just simply come to me. You find me in my holy word. And this is what the catechism says in the last part of the answer to question 94. What does the Lord require of you in the first commandment? 
Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, love, fear, honor Him with all my heart. How do we come to know the Lord rightly? Well, spend some time reading Exodus chapter 12, the institution of the Passover. See what God is doing? That tells you what kind of a God he is. And you can jump to Exodus 20. We just read that too. Study Exodus 20. There the Ten Commandments are giving. Boy, that tells us a lot about who God is, what kind of a holy God, what a righteous God he is. See what God reveals to himself about how he deals with the gods of Egypt. They're all toast after these ten plagues are done. That tells you what kind of a God he is. The Catechism says further that I rightly come to know the only true God. People can make all kinds of difficulties trying to figure out how I am to truly know God and how, I, how can I be sure I really know this true God. Well, get your heart and mind into the Bible. On every page, he reveals himself. He says, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. These are my feelings. This is my holiness. This is my plan for the future. This is my promise for eternity. This is what I've done in ages past. It's all here. Look at what my son has done in the Gospels. See Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember, Jesus said to Thomas, it's all right there. It's not so difficult. How do we avoid idolatry? How do we avoid going to witches and practicing fortune-telling and all that nonsense? I rightly know the true God. And I trust Him and I submit to Him. I'm humble before Him. I'm patient with His leading in my life. I expect all good from Him. I love, I fear, I honor Him with all my heart. Boy, there's a lot here, isn't there, in terms of this relationship. It's grounded in that first commandment. If we have no other gods before him, it's, it'll be easy to get to know him rightly and trust him truly as he reveals himself in these holy scriptures. He shows himself to be a bondage-delivering God, a sin-forgiving God, a God who wipes out all the idols like the Egyptian idols. You might wonder today, where are all the gods of ancient Egypt? Where is Zeus, Apollos, Mars? Where are all these gods? Well, they've been in the trash heap for a long, 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 long time. The gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Egyptians, they're, they're non-existent. But he remains. And he's very concerned about our salvation. He already has passed over our sins by the shedding of the blood of his Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us to be theologically, religiously smart. He wants us to be intelligent. He wants us to avoid all idolatry. And that's why he had to spell things out pretty explicitly to the Israelites. We turn briefly to Deuteronomy 19, and here God gets to the nitty-gritty of what this calling of the first commandment looks like. He says in verse 9, 
When you come into the land of Egypt, into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who, who calls up the dead. For all those who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. God couldn't have spoken in clear language to his people. He's very explicit here. He zeroes in on the Canaanites who gave up their own children, offered them on altars of Baal and Asherah, and, and, and their little toddlers they put into the flames trying to beseech their gods. O oh God of Baal, if I give my children to you and burn them in the fire in your arms, will you then not help me in return? That sounds like a good trade-off, the people thought. And they trusted that their gods would do them good and bless them and protect them if they gave their children to their, their gods in the fire. We can't imagine something more horrific that we could do. The last part of verse 14, God says, as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. God has not appointed such for us. Israel must not go to the witches, to the mediums, to the sorcerers, or to try and conjure up spirits of the dead for guidance, to comfort them, to turn to soothsayers to know what the future might hold. You all remember King Saul going to the witch of Endor. This was on the night of that great battle against the Philistines, and Saul wanted to know what was going to happen tomorrow would the Philistines destroy him or would they, or would he destroy them? He wanted to know. And he sought out that witch. But congregation, to seek to know what God has not revealed, that God condemns. Using magical arts or divination, divination is a word that means to be able to divine. It means to be able to do really what only God alone can do, to see the future or determine the future or to make things happen supernaturally. For us to seek to want to do that or to be part of that, God absolutely condemns. He calls it an abomination. We think of the magicians and the diviners in the court of Pharaoh. They thought they had the same power to turn water into blood or to multiply frogs like Moses and Aaron could but God condemned the magicians for what they did. If you would go to a fortune teller, if you make a habit of reading horoscopes, please don't do that because God condemns that. It's an abomination to God for you to seek to know by some other means what you think the future might be and then to trust in that sort of a thing. What ought you to do instead? You simply trust the Lord your God who's brought you out of bondage, who has said to you, you shall have no other gods before me. That should be enough. Have no other gods. Trust in nothing else. God's going to take care of your future, that's for sure. He will bless you. He's a sovereign God. 
He knows all things. The counsel of his will stands. He determines all things by the counsel of his will. That's just simply how it is, congregation, because this is how God is. Isn't it wonderful to have such a faithful, almighty, all-knowing, all-loving, all-protecting God as our foundation, as the one who has redeemed us from the house of bondage and brought us to himself, yea, through the blood of that great Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And therefore, to the answer to all our idolatry and all our doubts and all the confusion in life and all the fake helps we could trust in, the Catechism says, further that I rightly come to know the only true God, hey, there's the answer, and I trust in him alone, that's the way to go. I submit to him with all humility and patience. I know it's maybe hard, but that's what we need to do. It's not asking too much, and I expect all good from him only. I love, I fear, I honor him with all my heart. It's the kind of thing that we read in Proverbs chapter 3, these great words given to my son as chapter 3 begins. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. And then verse 5, the writer says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the first commandment, isn't it? It's saying it differently, but still the first commandment. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. We might think we're pretty smart. We got a college degree. We've got this diploma on the wall. Never mind. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge, look to, depend upon, understand in all your ways. Acknowledge him. Remembering what he says in his word, that's true. There's wisdom. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Implied is the first commandment, and in its keeping, look at all the blessings he gives. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. That just spells out, hey, things will be good for you. God is going to take care of you because you were serious about trusting him. Trusting him because of all that he has done, delivering you out of bondage already. And so congregation, as we take this first commandment to heart, this is really, this is really smart, this is wise, this is good then we have nothing to worry about. Then we don't have to fear anything. And we certainly don't have to doubt God's word or God himself. The psalm writer or the proverb writer says in verse one again, my son do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace. 
they will be added to you. We all want peace and security in life, don't we? We don't depend upon prime ministers. We don't depend upon what American president will be elected in a couple days' time. Might be nice to know right now. Doesn't matter. Length of days and long life and peace will be added to you as you keep my commandments. Amen.